Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 7 Investing Podcast. I'm JT Street, and we've got a great one here for you today as we break down the Wall Street Journal Health Forum. The big news from the forum, Ozempic, Wagovi, Semaglutide, 1% GDP increase from all these weight loss drugs. But will regulation potentially cut into some of that heavyweight earnings? We also found out who the big winners were from COVID, Big Pharma. We'll talk a little bit about that. And speaking of big, how about a $4 million price tag for a pill? Would you pay it? You might not, but your insurance might. Here to talk about all of those things is Seven Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. Simon, what a week you had last week at the WSJ Health Forum. I did. I have a fun time up in Boston, JT. There was a lot of caffeine, a lot of insightful conversations. Wanted to take away a couple of them and share them with everyone here on the podcast. You know, when I when I read that there might be a 1% GDP increase to the U.S. economy because of Wagovi, Azembic, Semaglutide, I thought to myself, well, that, um, we, we, we eat too much, is what I thought. But, uh, you know, the, these drugs, for people who don't know, this is a medical weight loss uh, revolution. It started out uh, in the diabetes sector, right? This was a way that for people who had serious weight-related diabetic uh, complications to get that stuff under control. And then they realized, well, wait a minute, anyone can take this and lose 20, 30% of their body fat. And so then it hit the, uh, the you know, aesthetic industry and the, the not quite so medically necessity uh, industry. And the demand for it has been out of control to the point where Regulators now, insurance companies and others are saying, whoa, 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 this, this isn't for everyone. So, so what was the, the mood of the forum like? Were, were those the, the big conversation points? That certainly was, JT. And, you know, when you think about a company as big as Novo Nordisk is, right, this is the Danish company traditionally focused, like you mentioned, on diabetes. But amazingly, last year, 2023, it's obesity care product sales. So the drugs that it was selling for obesity increased 154%. It sold $14 billion of Ozempic for weight loss and another $4.5 billion for Wagovi. Again, Ozempic is meant to be a, an obesity drug, excuse me, a diabetes drug that is now translated, not even FDA approved yet for weight loss. Only Wagovi is for that one. But these are selling like hotcakes right now. There's a couple of things that are interesting of this. First of all, patients can't get enough of it. Even though uh, the FDA has, uh, has approved the drugs, uh, a lot of insurers are saying, no, weight loss is a cosmetic thing, or that's an elective thing for patients. It's not a medical need, and so you'd have to pay this out of pocket. And a lot of people have no problem shelling out the eight or $900 per month that it costs for Ozempic for the, for the treatment. Uh, but again, there's also kind of a huge benefit from this, too, because a lot of people are saying, well, if patients really are uh, averaging 16 to 22% weight loss when they're on these drugs, that can prevent a lot of serious conditions down the line, right? And so, of course, we know that, you know, surgery and more complicated medical conditions can cause from, uh, from, from obesity or, you know, high BMI. And this might be a way to prevent some of those up front. So there's a lot of people that are really, really big fans of this new line of GLP-1 uh, weight loss drugs that are out there. Yeah, it's interesting to me that they won't cover this, but they'll still cover Latvian surgery. It's like, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll let you get to the point where you're in a state of crisis and then we'll help you out. But we're not going to ensure anything that will keep you from getting to that state of crisis. So 
I think there's an opportunity there for the insurance companies. Um, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll frame it that way, right? I'll frame it as an opportunity so that maybe it actually like gets them to consider it because otherwise what I'm seeing is, you know, another situation where if you have this thing where the supply becomes an issue, the insurance folks pull back and say, ah, no, 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 maybe not. But a lot of people, like I have people who have taken this drug and they don't have diabetes, but they were in a, a state where they were going to have health complications. They could down the line, right? If they didn't get their weight under control. And sure enough, this helped. So I, I think there really is an opportunity for health insurance here. If they, if they want to make preventative care, not lip service, this is a really good opportunity for them to continue down that path and, and actually put their money where their mouth is and cover some of these things that prevent larger, more catastrophic things later on, like those lap band surgeries. So hopefully they get it figured out. Uh, putting their money where their mouth is is a perfect pun related to this topic specifically, JT. Un unintended, I'm sure, or you just you naturally flow with those so well. But, you know, the, the science itself is something that didn't just kind of come out of nowhere, right? We're talking about how well Ozempic has done. Um, you know, it's only been on the market for a couple of years. It's already one of the best-selling pharmaceutical drugs in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. But again, the science, these GLP-1 inhibitors, um, they affect the body in a bunch of different ways, which is why you're seeing it translate to these different types of indications, right? So when it's, when it's uh, looking in the pancreas, it's actually helpful to kind of produce and regulate the insulin that's produced by the body, which can be used for diabetes, which was originally intended by Novo. But then we noticed that when these kind of got into the brain, they could actually suppress appetite, right? That's hormones that would suppress your body from thinking that it was still hungry when it really wasn't. So that was good for weight loss. There's now some studies that the same kind of drug molecules could be used in the liver to prevent fatty buildups. It could potentially be fatal. And so like this new class of inhibitors, um, it's not something that happened overnight, but it is something that really could have a lot of opportunities outside of just how it was intended for diabetes. Uh, this could be something that, you know, three, four, five, maybe even more than that indications as we learn more and more about the science. Wow. Wow. I, sign me up for the fatty liver one. Uh, just again, just trying to get ahead of things, you know, my twenties were wild. So I'll take that. Um, uh, th this is interesting to me that as science progresses and we, we, the unintended consequences of these things pop up, right. And, and hopefully they're positive, right. But, but like you said, so many of these things are being used kind of, um, off late, right. They're not being used for their intended purposes. So. I'll be interested to see in the coming years if these kind of off-label uses uh, wind up being something where, you know, like like Botox off-label was being used for TMJ pain, right? You'd inject it in the, in the muscles in your jaw, and then you wouldn't have these, like, awful headaches and migraines anymore. And now it's done common practice, even though that was never the intention for Botox. So hopefully that'll be the case with these. The, the inhibitor stuff sounds fascinating. What do investors need to know from this? You know, I, I think a lot of people are saying that Novo Nordisk is an overpriced stock, right? They're kind of pointing to how uh, Ozempic has, has kind of come out of nowhere. And it seems like, you know, this has been uh, driving its gains, which is which is accurate to say that. But I think a lot of people are kind of waiting for a, for a pullback because maybe they think this is a fad. Maybe they think it's gotten too expensive on valuation multiples. Um, my, my investing takeaway is the, actually the opposite of this. I think that it's going to continue to gain popularity. Um, the, some of the the centers, you know, the clinics that can prescribe um, Wagovi or can um, um, Manjaro, you know, which is the Eli Lilly drug, 
or Ozempic, uh, you know, they've got like month long waits for new patients to even be seen right. And so when you've got a situation, you know, where companies are just trying to get as much manufacturing for this as they possibly can to keep up with demand, that's typically a really, really good sign uh, for a drug maker. And, you know, we've seen from Novo, they're, they're going to continue to improve this too, right? They're going to improve the durability of this. Uh, they're probably going to do some combination therapies with this to improve the equ- efficacy, you know. These are going to get even better and more popular over time. I think there's a long runway for weight loss drugs, especially in America. Yeah. What, what do you factor the risk of, of government regulation and then insurance is pulling the plug on this when they realize that, oh gosh, everyone we cover is fat. It's interesting because, you know, like you mentioned, bariatric surgery is covered by Medicare, uh, but weight loss drugs, which would be upstream of that surgery, are not covered. And so there's kind of some understanding of the science, you know, is this medical need or is this elective or cosmetic? Um, I think that there's a good case to be made that obesity is a disease based on how your body is interacting with itself. And if that's the case, it probably should be covered by insurance. And of course, that would unlock, unlock a whole bunch of new demand for, for these companies. Well, one thing that was definitely covered by insurance was the COVID vaccine by Moderna, at least early on. Uh, and uh, Moderna did quite well uh, through the COVID vaccine because of that. Now it's looking that like, uh, just as, as we all changed things that, you know, changed our lives and adapted to COVID-19, uh, Moderna did so as well. It was fascinating reading in your article about how the company kind of restructured itself during COVID after seeing, uh, the, the results of the, uh, well, one, the huge amount of money they got to do the vaccine and then two. The, the, the massive swing after the vaccine was approved. Uh, take us through how Moderna kind of reinvented itself through COVID. Yeah, it really is neat. You know, everyone kind of looks at Moderna and says, oh, one hit wonder. It's kind of like some of those 80s bands that, you know, had one track that made it onto one album and then you never heard from anywhere anymore. And so they do concerts, they play that song and then they play another hour of stuff that nobody ever heard of. Uh, but that's not the true with Moderna. Moderna, if you look at it, was actually founded um, as, as, uh, by Nubar Afayan, um, you know, he's kind of the entrepreneur that is not only the co-founder of Moderna, but also the co-founder of flagship pioneering. And so he was speaking at the conference. He said some interesting things. Uh, he describes, uh, creating healthcare companies as being in the disappointment business. Um, you have to go into new ventures like this, expecting to lose, expecting to be disappointed. Because everything has to be so cheap, everything has to be so available, everything has to be scaled so quickly in order to, for it to be effective. And so Moderna had put in 10 years of research work and over $2.5 billion before the COVID pandemic presented the opportunity for its drug to become, quote unquote, an overnight success as a vaccine. And of course, now, you know, there's 5.5 billion people in the world that have taken the COVID vaccine. Um, when you look in, in your 700, I believe it was 700 million cases of COVID that were reported globally, um, that is a huge, huge step change in the massive amount of data that they have available to learn how this drug is interacting with patients, learn what genetic makeup patients have that are most that respond as well as possible to the, to the vaccine. And then if, uh, heaven forbid, there is another future pandemic that breaks out, they can be more prepared to actually have something that is distributed globally as quickly as possible. Now they've got the infrastructure in place. Now they understand the R&D a little bit better. 
So for a company like Moderna, who's in the disappointment business, um, you have something that hits, you maximize the success, and then you kind of iterate on top of that. This is, JT, why you see big pharma keep getting bigger and bigger over years and years. Well, as someone who took the Moderna vaccine and then got COVID anyway, the disappointment business is the perfect way to describe how that product worked in practice. Um, what do they do from here? I mean, what's the, you say they're not a one-hit wonder. What's, uh, what's the sophomore slump? How do they avoid the sophomore slump? Uh, for, for their, what, now it's what? It's, uh, it's got 50 products now compared to 22 before COVID. So, so what is Moderna doing now? Yeah, that's right. They've got 50 products that are going through trials right now. Before COVID, they had 22. So essentially, this doubled their pipeline of what could be in the hopper. And again, we've talked uh, on various occasions about other things that Flagship is doing that are interesting, right? Series Therapeutics for the microbiome. Um, that's kind of one of these emerging technologies that people don't really understand yet. You've got to have some trendsetter, some trailblazer that's going out there and trying new things, trying to disrupt the traditional approach to doing things. And then when they show something that's interesting or promising, they want to partner with the incumbents, the larger pharmaceutical players out there. So I think Moderna, Moderna is no longer one of those small, you know, startup companies. You know, this is a powerhouse now that's going to work on efficiencies and incrementally get its drugs even better for different variations or mutations of the coronavirus. Um, but look for flagship to do some more interesting things too, JT. Um, I think you've got a pretty smart co-founder this at the helm of this company. Um, He's, he's got a zillion ventures. He's kind of one of these serial entrepreneurs, but he thinks that breakthroughs not as things that are created by people, but they're emergence. Things are emergent that just are waiting to be discovered out there. And he wants to be the company with kind of this platform to discover them. Yeah, I think my takeaway as a, as a newer investor is always to look a step higher, right? So you, you, you look at it like a small company like Series and you're like, oh, that's cool. Wait, oh, wait, they're not independent. Oh, who owns? Oh, wait, the flagship. Oh, wow, the same company that owns Moderna. Oh, they also own flagship. You know, with especially in the in the medical space, it really is. Well, I guess really anywhere, it really is a few key players that own the ownership stakes in so many companies. So, if you're an investor and you're looking into one of these companies, you you may want to go a few rungs up the ladder and see just you know who who is actually pulling the strings of your favorite company. Um, and then finally, my goodness, uh, talk about healthcare bracing $2 million a pill that, that, uh, rings some headlines recently, uh, as the, uh, it was, am I pronouncing this right? Keskevi? Keskevi, huh? Yeah. $2 million per treatment, but it's a one and done and you don't have sickle cell anymore, which is really incredible. It's a horrible disease for those who suffer from it. And the idea that you take one treatment and you're done is an incredible breakthrough. I also know not a lot of people have two million in cash land around to get that treatment. So, uh, you know, beyond the 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 sticker shock obscenity of two million dollars for a treatment, um, how does healthcare manage to stay relevant in a world where you aren't stringing someone along with a lifetime of medications? Is, is it these big upfront payments that are then covered by insurance? Is that something that the, the forum went into with this, or is it really more kind of the, the kind of, oh, wow, look at this, uh, uh, this new kind of economic model for single treatment uh, responses? Yes, yes, that is kind of both, right? It's, you know, is insurance going to pick up the tab for something that costs $2 million? 
or is this kind of the new model of, you know, moving things that have been chronically managed sometimes for their patient's entire life that you can now actually have a one-time treatment for? As you mentioned, you know, Cash Jebby, this is something that was developed by CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex Pharmaceuticals, um, and it is a CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. It's not a pill, it's a treatment. Uh, and so what it does is it, it's taking cells out of your bone marrow, and it's actually uh, gene editing them, not, not gene therapy, but gene editing them so that they will permanently replicate by replacing the faulty genes with healthier ones. And sickle cell, you know, this is a disease that has red blood cells that are shaped like sickles rather than the normal shape. And they're very painful. You know, it's a lifetime condition. Um, really hasn't been effectively cured or, or really even treated um, since it kind of was discovered 70 years ago or so. But, you know, CRISPR with, with gene editing says, you know, if we actually went in there and did this, uh, it would be super expensive, you know, $2 million for the treatment, but it'd be a one and done. It, it's not something you have to treat forever. It's something that would not, um, it, it could live a, a longer lives for the patients. You know, you wouldn't have as much cost. And it's kind of, you know, for insurers, they see this as also, this is a, a treatment that, you know, the standard of care today for sickle cell is costing between four and $6 million per patient over their lifetime. And so if you can pay $2 million one time up front and it works, will you reimburse for that? Yeah, they, they've said that they will. And there's been more than 100 patients that have already taken this drug. And so I think this is really interesting. Um, we've been talking about gene therapies and we've been talking about gene editing for a while here. We've now got um, approval for two gene editing, not only for, um, for sickle cell, but also for uh, beta thalassemia, which just got approved here in January as well. I mean, these, this is kind of the new, the new era. Um, first of all, can you do it technically? We've shown now, yes, you can. We got FDA approval for it. Two, will the insurance pay for it? Yeah, insurers are paying for it. It's already covered out there. But then more importantly, I think is the third step, which is like, is this only going to be for the super rich that have got really good insurance coverage that can afford to cover this? Or is this something that can be distributed in developing economies or in places like Africa, where certainly patients have got these diseases, but you don't have that infrastructure. You don't have those medical centers and facilities or the insurance reimbursement schemes to cover it. I mean, like this is something that's going to follow the Tesla model, probably JT. You've got the Roadster out there that's $100,000 for the super rich at first. But then a couple of years later, you've got the Model 3, which is $30,000, $35,000. I think you're going to see the same thing with a lot of these gene editing treatments. They're going to start really expensive. The funding from the insurance reimbursement is going to uh, progress these things in new scientific ways to get the cost down and make them more available. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, uh, aside from uh, Jonas Salk spinning in his grave right now, um, these these modern medical marvels are complicated, right? The, the, the idea that you're having to pull out your bone marrow to replace it with a different bone marrow, I, I mean, bone marrow transplants have been done, but they're not easy. Right. And so, yeah, if you want to do that, you've got to figure out some way to, you know, get the patient covered for that complicated treatment. And not only that, but all the research that went into it. So hopefully we find ways to do that. It's fascinating. It's, it's crazy. I, I, I can't wait to see what other, um, you know, one and done treatments, uh, pop up, uh, as, as we continue to progress through these things and, uh, how, as society we can restructure how we do this to help people out and help them live normal longer happier healthier lives uh through genetic wildness that's that's crazy uh 
what 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 do, uh, so it looks like CRISPR therapeutics, vertex pharmaceuticals are you know CRISPR is an interesting one because there was a lot of back and forth of like are the is CRISPR the CRISPR therapeutics company are they really the ones in the pole position here right or or will someone else come in and upseat them um, and it sounds like uh, with, with at least in this regard that that they've kind of snatched that mantle back and they said no no no, no. we are the ones who are getting this done we're getting an FDA approved where we are putting this into people. Uh, so that's that's pretty impressive as, as somebody who doesn't follow the industry very closely. Any other uh, investor takeaways here? It, it's pretty neat. You know, there's a lot of IP, um, you, you know, stuff stuff that's out there. You know, who, who owns the IP for CRISPR? Is it coming from UC Berkeley? Is it coming from the Broad Institute, you know, Harvard? Um, that's going to continue to battle it out. You know, there's going to be some legal uh, give and take on, on a lot of this. But I think that the science itself is just going to keep pushing forward. Uh, it's neat what's going on out there. And it may be, may be important to, to point out there's a difference between gene editing, which is perfect, I, I'm sorry, which is, uh, which is permanent because it's replicating as the cells replicate and making patients healthier over time versus gene uh, therapies, which you know we, we've, we've introduced those a couple of years ago, but there's a question of like, are those going to be durable beyond three or four or five years? Uh, you're delivering gene therapies into cells that are faulty or problematic, but you're not necessarily replicating those uh, for for permanent solutions, so I, I think that there's going to be a lot of approaches to this. Vertex and CRISPR, I've got a a real nice um, success though here. Great to see it get approved and and selling already. That's a lot of momentum for a small company like CRISPR and a big company like Vertex. And if you want to find out more information about CRISPR and a lot of the companies that we've mentioned here today, well, I encourage you to come and join us as a Seven Investing subscriber. Uh, you can do that now for just seventeen dollars a month. Uh, or $170 a year for our premium service that also gets you into the seven investing forum on discord. Uh, it's very much like the WSJ Hemel forum full of very smart people who are talking about very complicated things every single day, helping us understand the world of investing and uh, identifying some really nice opportunities, uh, as we look back, uh, over almost four years of seven investing. I know I'm kind of jumping the gun. A little bit here, Simon, but we are we are really close to celebrating Seven Investing's fourth birthday uh, here on March first with our with our March first recommendations. So that's always a lot of fun. Uh, I'm not going to let all of the birthday surprises out early, but for those of us, uh, for those of you who have followed the company, we always do something really interesting in, in the month of March for our birthday, and we're definitely going to be doing that again this year. Uh, happy early birthday, Simon, to Seven Investing. And uh, before we go here, I just you know, coming up on four years now, uh, a lot of highs uh, and a lot of wild uh, swings in the market. Uh, what are you looking forward to uh, as we head into our birthday month this year? Oh, my goodness. What a crazy four years it's been, J.D. I mean, we launched and you were right there with me, March of 2020, right? COVID is going widespread across the U.S. Uh, it's kind of crazy out there, but it's also for investors an interesting time, right? You know, I, there was a a lot of stocks that were great opportunities in 2020. Uh, we got the opportunity to capitalize on a lot of those, put those on our seven investing scorecard. 2022 was almost exactly the opposite with the interest rates shooting up as quickly as they did. Felt like nobody wanted to invest until the Fed figured out what it was going to do. Uh, this is actually a pretty exciting year. You know, the late part of 2023 and 2024, we've seen a market resurgent again. We're seeing money flow back into equities. It was in short-term instruments. Uh, bonds and money market funds and stuff like that as we were waiting to kind of buckle down the hatches 
and waiting for the Fed to show some uh, some clarity. You know, interest rate rates, uh, interest rate cuts are on the table this year. Uh, we've got an exciting couple of recommendations every month that we put out there. I've got mine picked out for March. I'm excited to reveal it on March 1st at the same time that we'll celebrate our fourth birthday. It's been a really wild ride and a lot of fun. So if you want to join us again, that's 7investing.com slash subscribe. You can get in now. You'll get our March recommendations. You'll get all of our prior recommendations over the past four years. You can see everything we've done. You can read uh, the evolution of our research over time in these companies. It's it's a really interesting if you're considering, you know, plunking down some money into a company. That's one of our recommendations. You can go through now the past four years and see how the how the company has has treated its investors. Right? Is it a roller coaster? Is it slow and steady growth? Uh, are they increasing dividends? We just had a recommendation it increase its dividend by what, like twenty five percent. Uh, in the last quarter, which is why. So uh, it's it's always something interesting. The forum is great, and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. For Simon Erickson, I'm JT Street. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great day.